This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you so much for joining us on another news review, doing this a day before, with the wonderful Mr. Joe Allen. Joe, thanks so much for your time once again. Peter, great to be here in virtual space. Well, always good to have you. People can find you. Obviously, there is your Twitter handle, and that's what people will find uh, when they go on on Getter, on X, or known as Twitter, uh, formerly known as whatever it is now, but we'll always uh, know it as Twitter. Uh, so make sure to follow Joe on Everything AI. Obviously, Dark Eon is his book uh, behind, which is a, some people I talked to said, oh, I didn't get all the way through because it was quite scary. And I actually thought I actually really enjoyed it. I hate having interviews, Joe, with people that actually enjoy the book so much that you spend too long reading it and you're there with a pen thinking, oh, there's a lot to take. I can't skim over it, but um, I can't recommend it highly enough. I think you've just done an audio book recently. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, and uh, I, I really do appreciate that, Peter. I think, you know, fear is definitely not the appropriate response, at least not after a little time to digest. No, 100%. Um, and it's wonderful. And you bring in your personal uh, story on some of the angles as well. So it's it's really awesome book. Um, if I just start with, I just need to just mention where I've been, and I haven't sent this to you, um, Joe, and I'm still a little bit on cloud nine, but that is where I was the other day. Um, I'm a bit jaded because it was a 16-hour, 17-hour round trip uh, down to South Carolina for a MAGA event. And it's actually the second MAGA event I was at. I was at an NRA event up in Pennsylvania um, and got to meet uh, the most powerful man in the world. Uh, and it was awesome. And all thanks to Jason Miller, obviously the privilege of working with during Getter's uh, time in 2022. But it was a privilege. Uh, again, Joe, kind of the the Spending time with people, uh, like seeing Nigel Farage, for instance, hugely well-known figure, and, um, and you kind of forget how much others appreciate when you get stopped and stopped, and um, and the privilege of being up there and catching up with the team and lots of MAGA supporters. So, um, rule on. What, 4th of November, 11th of November, is it? Uh, it's going to be wild. This is definitely going to be a wild year. I, I don't necessarily anticipate a false flag disease X, um, nor do I think that they're going to do the same sorts of uh, ethnic rioting that they pulled in 2020. Uh, it'll be more opportunistic, I think, and less uh, calculated. Uh, I, I think they've worn out their pandemic and uh, uh, kind of, we'll just call it ethnic rioting uh, <laughs> strategies. So, but we'll see. I, one way or the other, uh, you know, the Democrats will seize on anything, anything whatsoever uh, to sow chaos. And, uh, you know, the the Republicans in the establishment are, by and large, just going to play along. And those on the, the dissident end of this spectrum, uh, you know, we've oftentimes been accused of uh, sowing chaos. And maybe that's true at, at, at times. But at this point, uh, whatever chaos is, is, is being uh, sown, it's we can simply uh, seize upon it because we don't have to create it at all. The one thing I really do worry about is 
I, I think that you'll probably see a lot of highlighted, uh, you know, aggression against immigrants. I think that's going to be uh, probably uh, their, their biggest opportunity. And I think that whether or not false flags are employed, I don't think they'll need them all that much. I think there are enough psychos out there uh, waiting to snap on all ends of the political spectrum. And it's just a matter of which ones do snap. And once they snap, uh, how the media, the mainstream media cultivates that uh, narrative and uses it politically. But either, either way, whatever is to come uh, it is going to be pure craziness. And I also, uh, you know, with, I, I have no prediction as to whether Trump will get in or whether Trump will even uh, be a free man uh, come November. But uh, even, let's say, Trump wins in a landslide, uh, that's just the beginning of the work at that point. Well, I'm kind of thinking it'll be the best man win between Michael Obama and Trump, but we'll not even go there. <laughs> we're not even going there. Right, let, let's jump into the first uh, to the uh, first tweet. And this is Sam Altman. Um, and actually, this is, it, it's strange how you connect with, with get, you follow people, you connect with guests, and, and you learn names. And Sam Altman actually, uh, stupidly, was not on my radar, but you had posted this, and he had said, Open AI now generates about 100 billion words per day. All people on Earth generate about 100 trillion words per day. Um, tell us where this is going, because you see the scale of it there in, in black and white in numbers. Um, you see it beginning to, to morph into something huge. And for him to compare what AI is actually generating compared to what human beings are generating. It shows he wants to close that gap. But yeah, tell us what is happening, how this is actually moving forward. Well, this has been, 2024 has been crazy uh, in regards to open AI. Uh, Sam Altman, you know, I, I write about him a lot. I've written about him in many articles. And uh, in the book, I go through all of his different projects with, uh, creating gabies with, uh, you know, two men's uh, uh, genes at the company conception and so on and so forth. Of course, his role at OpenAI and his idea that artificial general intelligence is just over the horizon and those who don't want to live under such a regime uh, may be able to live in exclusion zones. Uh, that's something really important background for Altman's way of thinking. Uh, he's not a total villain. No person is, but he fits the bill well enough that I think that uh, it's worth highlighting his worst aspects. So that tweet that he sent out is is really interesting for a number of re reasons. Whether you know you could you could split hairs over how accurate it is, but his claim that OpenAI is basically uh, you know uh, producing 0.1 percent of the you know the amount of words generated by human beings i mean what he's what he's talking about is scale uh, you hit that uh, that term a moment ago open ai has always been about scaling to get ai to perform at higher and higher levels not necessarily by changing the architecture or the programming is, is another way to think of that uh, but by taking uh, previously existing architectures, AI architectures, and simply scaling them up, making them bigger and bigger and bigger. And the the amount of adoption that we've seen with uh, OpenAI's products, especially ChatGPT, has been insane. So you've got two types of scale there. 
you've got the scale of the, the machine itself, right, of the AI itself getting larger and larger in order to uh, produce more and more sophisticated uh, output. But then also, and of course, the data has also scaled up tremendously due to that, uh, the, you know, larger uh, architecture. So and then, uh, that uh, larger uh, uh, neural network scaling. What, what's also really important about that, though, is, you know, when Elon Musk talks about the dangers of AI, which, you know, of course, he's rushing headlong to create his own. Uh, one of the things that he brings up is the ratio of non-biological compute to biological compute. And that's a kind of uh, too neat and tidy way of thinking of it, but it is a, a good jump off point. How much thinking is being done on earth by human beings, especially important thinking, important decision making, and how much is being done by machines? Right now, it's primarily human beings, but more and more, it's the machines making these decisions, especially for the lives of regular people. Uh, machines make all sorts of decisions uh, in our lives, what we consume, oftentimes uh, implicitly what we uh, do, where we go, who we know, all of these sorts of things. And the vision that they hold up is that AI becomes more and more sophisticated as they scale it more and more. Uh, and as adoption grows more and more, then eventually the ratio will see a, a flip in which the machines will be producing more output than the humans, whether it's artistic or verbal, literary, uh, mathematic, whatever. And also the decision-making will increase in that direction, meaning that human beings, especially those without any real political power or economic power, uh, will be enthrall to the machine. So that is the underlying, uh, the underlying paradigm to what Sam Altman is saying there. There's a, a little comment below, too. A, a gentleman jumped in and said, we need more humans. And Altman quips back, we need more GPUs. Wow. And what he means, you know, GPUs are graphics processing units. Those are the, the chips used by AI companies to train their models. And at the time of that, that tweet, uh, or that excrete, I guess, if it's X, maybe we should call them excretes. Um, but at that time, uh, you had Altman uh, going to investors, especially maybe most importantly, investors in the UAE and asking for funding for uh, to build out AI architecture. He's well, asked let, for well, let, we'll, 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 we'll jump into that. I won't bring up another story because we'll jump into that. Um, and I'm sorry, I. Yeah. Let, let, let's move on to where AI actually connects directly uh, with individuals. This is not a far-off idea that's fun for writing an essay, but actually comes much closer. So let's bring up this story. But first, just reminding viewers, obviously, um, they can find you on War Room. And I know you're jumping on War Room later. Um, you got back-to-back -back stuff. So um, always appreciate squeezing you in between your many, many worm slots. It seems to be daily you're on recently. Yeah, it, it always varies. It depends on the news cycle. <laughs> there's always news on War Room. There's always news. If there's not, Steve will make it. So one or the other. Um, let's 
on this um, by Disclose TV, uh, the Yud uh, retweeted new Walmart, Delta, T-Mobile, Chevron, and Starbucks, as well as European brands including Nestle, um, are using AI to monitor employee messages. And you put on, uh, up a message on that. This brings it closer to home. Do you want to touch on this uh, because this, I think, crossing the line between our freedoms supposedly, if we had any. Um, to me, that's where it may begin to hit up against resistance. But when you saw this tweet, what were you thinking? In many ways, it's just a continuation of a process that's been going on for uh, well over two decades now and really uh, was catalyzed by 9-11 when they made it very apparent that the that our intel agencies would be raking over all of our communications online. Uh, nobody seemed to really care all that much then. I mean, there was those of us who, there were those of us who took completely freaked out, and many who took to the streets. But in the end, it meant nothing. They just steamrolled us. So uh, what this is is just another iteration of it. Uh, you know, you've got all of these major corporations. They are using, uh, they, they've contracted with a company called Aware. Uh, it's a startup that uh, rakes over uh, messages, internal messages, and it um, anonymizes the data, but it does give the employer a, a means of gauging what the employees are thinking and how they feel. You know, the in machine learning, there is, uh, you know, sentiment analysis in which certain words or combinations of words uh, or the machine is able to at least uh, attach the the uh, kind of emotional valence of those words to the 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 message you know or, I mean, sorry to the emotion itself so if the employees are discontent and the employees are happy if the employees are uh, stupid and doing you know walking in lockstep with whatever the company is saying uh, the company is able to then uh, you know analyze the or through this company aware uh, you could say Walmart is able to analyze on mass the uh, internal messages of the employees to to get a, a, a read on that rather than say doing a survey or whatever. Uh, I, I think that in one way it's overblown and I don't want to minimize it, but it is it's not like um, you know the the Walton family is if you work for Walmart, the Walton family is going through your your private messages and seeing what you're saying to your girlfriend. And knowing it's you, uh, but what you do have is uh, again, this is tremendous power. The you know this entire concept of a surveillance society is uh, really disturbing for a lot of reasons. The, the most immediate reason for most people is that I don't want people watching me personally. I don't want people raking through my data. Oftentimes, though, people will dismiss it as you know, who cares? I've got nothing to hide. Wherever you stand on that spectrum. The real power of this, unless you are a true person of interest, unless you're a person that they need to analyze up to down, you know, top to bottom and, and take you out, the real power is in the aggregate data and being able to get a read on public sentiment en masse. And so that is what's going on with Walmart. That's what's going on with the Democrat um, you know, the, the, the Democrats uh, campaign, that's what's going on with the Republicans campaign, that's what's going on with your universities, that's what's going on with any startup that has access to the data, that's what's going on with any individual 
who uh, has even like the, the barest tools like Google Analytics. That's what everybody wants the data. Data is the new gold and everybody wants the data for their personal benefit. The big difference is that these large companies have vast amounts of data and they have way more power to enact their will if they are able to actually discern what the public is thinking. Um. Can I jump into another tweet, which is a different strain in this, as one that you bring out in your book, and that is a thread of, um, I think, mean human meaning, spirituality, faith, um, and you talk about your uh, personal Christian faith in in the book, and I find that fascinating. But here's um, Joshua Bash, who again, you come across names, you realize, oh, these are big individuals in in the AI world. Um, And his tweet, the US is by law a secular society, despite low-key recognizing the moral authority of higher powers. Unfortunately, it does not identify with an operational definition of secularism. So while it won't subordinate to Christian churches, it is open to capture by ideological cults. And you ask how long till the cyborg theocracy account to the Constitution. Um, It's a fascinating concept that a part of AI is like a, a technological tower of Babel, trying to uh, reach how, trying to become godlike in in knowing, in power. Um, is is that a fair? That's kind of what I've seen from looking in from afar. Is that a, a fair concern to where this is going? Yes, yeah, yes, one hundred percent. I mean, that's what's happening. Uh, you know, I wrote Dark Eon to try to communicate the scale of this movement, this new religious movement. It's not a religion in the same sort of form that many people expect. You know, you think religion, you think temples, you think a priesthood with special garb, you think, uh, you know, orthodoxy, specialized rules, holy books, all of that. And uh, so they're like, well, how is how are these technologists forming a religion? What makes it a religion? Uh, The first thing I want to point out is that today, even traditional religions function very, very differently than they did before. So that you have the kind of new age movement in which people just pick and choose different elements from different religions or, or the sciences, and they weave them together in a personal way. And this is my personal faith, my personal quest, and it's all very idiosyncratic, but it's still a religious worldview. It's the spiritual orientation a person has. Same with evangelical Christianity. If a person never goes to church, if a person barely even cracks open their Bible, but they sit online and listen to a, you know, a series of, of TV preachers and uh, they have been saved, they've given their life over to Christ, all that. They, they may you know, know a few Bible verses and crack it open every now and then, but by and large, it exists outside of any kind of traditional institution as it would have been known a century ago and back. So what we're talking about, what I'm talking about anyway, with techno-religion, what Yuval Noah Harari is talking about with yeah. techno-religion, uh, what David Noble was talking about with techno-religion when he wrote The Religion of Technology in 1999, what it is is the continuation of religious sentiment in a secular world, in a, in a scientific world, a world in which technology is seen as the, the greatest power below the human brain until, of course, AI overtakes the human brain. And so what, you know, Bosch is talking about is, I, I don't know if he means what I mean. He's being very vague, but he's just simply saying, and accurately so, there is no, uh, secularism really isn't, uh, you know, uh, 
written into the Constitution in a way, yes, you have the separation of church and state, uh, but the the church, Christianity, informs the state, right? The, 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 the underlying morality of Christianity is translated into law and more and more other religions as the, the country pluralizes. So uh, what he's saying is that you could have the capture by an ideological cult that's able to enact its will via the state in ways that were certainly outside of the state, right? And, you know, through corporations or any other mechanism through an organized religion uh, that uh, would that the Constitution, in essence, the freedom of religion would protect. And you already see transhumanists and that sort talking in these ways. They talk about AI in terms of personhood. Uh, in terms of sentience, in terms of rights. Uh, that includes Martin Rothblatt, the famous transgender transhumanist. That includes Zoltan Istvan, the uh, former transhumanist party presidential candidate. Uh, that includes philosopher Peter Singer. Uh, that includes uh, people like Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, one of the four horsemen of new atheism. It includes many, many people. And if it were to go to its fullest extent, if the cyborg theocracy, as Artie and Tola of Canonic XYZ uh, coined it, if the cyborg theocracy gains full control, they could easily do so under the protection of the Constitution and under the protection of the kind of post-constitutional concepts of human rights, then translated over into machine rights. It all sounds very crazy, and it is very crazy. But in the same way that the ratio of biological compute to non-biological compute is shifting towards the non-biological, it's an open question as to whether or not the emphasis uh, you know, on or the importance put on any given entity in the world shifts more and more towards machines than human beings. Already, I'll say this in conclusion, already uh, many of the people in our political and economic elite and military elite put far more faith in their machines and defer to the will of machines, or at least the insights gleaned from machines, more than the vast majority of human beings on earth, right? And so in that sense, where it counts, you're already seeing a you know an, an approach to that critical mass wherein the machine is the center of gravity and not human beings. Even if the humans at the top still see their own humanity as the most important, uh, the more they create and deploy machines to basically, uh, you know, at, at the very least influence us, if not put us under total control, um, the, the, where it counts, the machine is becoming the center of gravity because where it counts is in our lives. Well, a lot of talk about uh, machines taking over rules and jobs, and this is supposed to be a, a good thing where humans are uh, just put to the side and not really needed. And one tweet you put up uh, from Wired was, AI is rewiring coders' brains, yours may be next. The CEO of GitHub says half of all code produced by users of Copilot programming helper is now AI-generated but that there's no sign that technology will replace the human coders. I can't understand those two lines, but again, I've read a lot about tech companies letting um, coders go. And if I assume, I understand that the, the point of AI is to be self-generating, self-replicating, that it actually doesn't need outside input. And this seems to be uh, a clear example of that happening, that it can actually grow 
itself without human input. So a headline like this should be massively concerning, setting off alarm bells. And yet I've I've read little taking this headline, this idea, um, and putting it out under any concern. It it seems to slip under the radar. But tell us, is this an example of um, humans becoming uh, uh, being pushed aside and no longer needed. It absolutely is. I, you know, I wouldn't say we're quite yet at a point where the machines can kind of take off and, and do on their own, uh, at least not to the extent. We're not, we're not approaching Skynet quite yet. But th- th- that article in particular, uh, you know, you've got GitHub, which is under Microsoft. You've got Copilot, uh, which is a product of GitHub, but then ultimately Microsoft. And powered by GPT, you know, OpenAI also under the Microsoft umbrella, even if they're an independent uh, entity. And one of the real surprises, especially once they moved from GPT-3, the original chat GPT, to GPT-4, which is now the engine powering it, is how well the system codes. It can write code very, very well. It, it needs, though, in general, it needs a human babysitter because it does make mistakes or it does weird wonky things that a human needs to be there to uh, oversee. So when uh, the the CEO of GitHub was talking about the, the kind of greater replacement, as I call it, in which uh, the machine takes over more and more of our, uh, our, our labor, our work lives, what it is is that you've got these coders who rather than sitting and hand typing code, they simply, you know, prompt the machine to write the code for them and then they kind of clean it up. But that means that you get a lot more code for, uh, you know, less man hours. It also means you need less people. And again, that ratio is shifting so that the, the, the amount of coding done by human beings, just like the amount of literary output, or at least emails and messages, things like that, just like the amount of visual output, uh, the, everything from you know imagery to now video, text to video AI, which I guess you know that that'll be good to talk about. What you're seeing is that human beings are becoming less and less relevant. We are becoming less the originators of any end product and more babysitters of the end product uh, or babysitters of the process to get there. And it was really important too the the statement made by uh, Donka, I can't remember his first name, uh, the GitHub CEO, statement made quoted at the very top of that Wired article that if you, just to paraphrase him, that if you don't get on board with this new future, you're going to be left behind. That is a consistent message that we're hearing from these top people, right? From the CEOs, from the Sam Altman's of the world, Arvind Krishna, CEO of IBM said the same at World Economic Forum, as did many, many others. And uh, this idea is that we have a digital ecosystem. And in order to survive in a digital ecosystem, in a world dominated by digital uh, communication and digital output, you have to digitize, you have to adapt. And they act like this is a force of nature, as if this was just simply inevitable in a way that no human could stop. And therefore, you have to join the stream or you are not going to be part of anything important. That may or may not be true, but it will will not be true because it's a force of nature. It will be true because of human decisions and human decisions in the collective. 
And so this, this whole idea that in order to adapt to, or in order to keep up with the digital ecosystem, you have to adapt. I, I, I reject the construct of adaptation in the sense that, uh, yeah, that to some extent, this is true. We're doing it right now here, but we're doing it because we made the choice to go along with other people's choices. I think that's a really, really important thing to remember. Right now, we may we may be subject to machines, but we're subject to machines that are being uh, created by humans and babysat by humans. And for right now, the you know the blame does not fall on the nature on or on the machine. The blame rests squarely on the shoulders of the people making the decisions to transform human society. I think that they're the ones that we need to be taking to account. Um. Can we jump on to an event that's been happening once again, maybe under the radar, and that's at World Government Summit. That is their uh, website. And I know you put a number of videos and we touched one or two of them. Um, I, I noticed you put up, uh, it had gone from World Government Summit to World Government's Summit. Uh, this is held in Dubai. Uh, I have a concern, anything set up in the Middle East, but then the West are no, no better. Um, but this has been going on for, what, 10 years, I think? Me, 2013? Uh, se- uh, seven years, I think. I think or this is either the seventh or eighth year. Okay. So, I mean, tell us about this, because, again, this is not really reported on, and we hear about Davos and what happens there. Um, but this seems to be a very powerful collection of world leaders that the public have zero knowledge about what's been discussed, what's been planned, what's been put together. Um, yeah, tell us your your thoughts on the World Government Summit or World Government's Summit as it now is. You know, it, it's sort of like um, an international outpost of the World Economic Forum. Uh, you know, it's not organized by the same, it's, it is organized by many of the same people, but it, it has its own center of gravity. You see a lot of the same people there, though. The intent is largely the same. It's an ideological hub. It's a place to showcase new ideas, sometimes new products, less so than the World Economic Forum. But it's, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum is centered by and large uh, on a, you know, a kind of a, a widespread of different concerns, everything from politics to corporate policy to finance, uh, you know, the environment, so on and so forth. The World Government Summit is much more focused on, as in the name, government. But you get, you know, Klaus Schwab is a regular there. Uh, Many of the same types, you know, you get all the tech CEOs speaking there. Elon Musk was there. God, it must have been as far back as 2015, maybe even before that. No, it couldn't have been that. Anyway, maybe 2017, 2018, whatever, whatever the date was. It was very early on and you had Elon Musk kind of trotting out the idea of all, all of us living in a simulation. And it was strange then as it's strange now. Here you have, you know, uh, what would become the richest man on earth talking to uh, a primarily Muslim audience at a world government summit about how we all live in a simulation. And it's, you know, it kind of at this point, it's, it's something that people shrug off. This is very, very important. These are the people who shape our lives, either through the corporations that organize our economic lives or through the governments who are setting rules and, and, you know, deploying police and soldiers to keep us in line. This is extraordinarily important. 
And, uh, the, you know, the shift from world government to world governments, I would imagine, is a PR move very similar to what the World Economic Forum does all the time. A PR move that is a response to the, the attention that they have been getting over the, the last couple of years. The war room, we have, we have hit them uh, since I've been on there. And uh, so, uh, but whatever the reason is, they did feel the need to uh, either uh, dissimulate or clarify. Uh, and and the appearances that were there this year uh, that I focused on anyway, there are a number. Uh, Tucker Carlson was there right after his interview with uh, Putin. And at the conclusion of his interview, uh, you know, he concluded it basically uh, condemning the people who want to be God. He kind of he said he divides the world between those who believe they're God and those who believe in God. And those who believe in God have humility and submit to higher forces beyond the human. Those who believe they are God uh, see themselves as the highest power on earth and maybe in the universe. And he's absolutely correct. This is a view voiced, very Nietzschean view voiced by transhumanists, but also just these kind of run of the mill corporate transhumanists or you know technocrats, you know the the CEOs. I, I would add one thing to what Tucker said, real briefly. There are those who believe in God, those who believe they are God, and there are those who believe they are creating God. And that's a different animal altogether. And among those are Larry Page at Google and Sam Altman at OpenAI. These are not basement dwellers we're talking about. Uh, another important appearance at world uh, the World Government Summit uh, was Jensen Huang, the, um, the CEO and founder of NVIDIA. And it, you know NVIDIA is the company that produces these GPUs, uh, by and large, many others do, but they are the primary producer, uh, manufacturer of uh, GPUs, of graphics processing units used uh, at scale to train uh, AI models, at least the largest and most uh, sophisticated of them. And these GPUs are uh, in short supply because of the, the massive demand for them, both from AI and you know gaming companies, but also from Bitcoin miners and crypto miners in general. So, uh, you know, to me, there were, he said many, many things. But uh, maybe the, the most important was this concept of... Uh, basically human beings across the planet are going to have to reconcile themselves to the AI transition, this transition into what Klaus Schwab called at the World Government Summit, the intelligent age. And he said, that, you know, we can't move in. Uh, Jensen Huang said, we can't move into this era with fear and trepidation. We have to seize the opportunities. We have to uh, basically develop digital or, or uh, sovereign AI, meaning that your nation owns its own data and protects its own data, and that the AI uh, basically is trained on your culture and becomes, in some sense, an encapsulation or an emissary of your culture. So that AI then becomes, if you think about the secular view of religion, that a god is simply a representative of the collective of the culture, that the God both reflects the culture and commands the culture. Uh, so whether it be Marduk, whether it be Osiris, whether it be Zeus, and then, you know, Christians hate the idea, naturally so, or Yahweh or Christ, that they are both a representative and a generator of the culture at large. AI is being positioned to do the exact same thing. And so when he talks about digital sovereignty, on the one hand, I do like the idea of data ownership. I do a personal data ownership, not nationalized data ownership. 
a personal data ownership. And I and uh, to the extent that any of this is happening and it is happening, I do think that a more nationalistic approach is better than some sort of homogenous global approach. But what I see happening more and more is we is the power shifts to these massive corporations, which basically function as international bodies or you know just global bodies not subject to national law and nations then being subject to these international organizations. What I see moving forward is that the kind of nationalism or the sovereignty movement is it, not necessarily an intentional front, but it is a de facto front for what is. Uh, you know, ultimately a global entity, right? The, you know, which is the collective of all of these different elite uh, organizations and human beings who are controlling so much of the politics and economy across the planet. And so when, when uh, Jensen Wang talks about data ownership, simultaneously uh, talking about the, the rapid scaling of AI, the introduction of AI into every facet of our lives from education to bio, you know, biomedical establishment, to the military, and the displacement of human beings and human efforts and the shift in that ratio towards the non-biological compute, what I see there is that the, the idea you will own your own data, you own your data, becoming a de facto front for a world in which you are forced to sell your data for, to supplement your universal basic income because there's really not much left for you to do. And the only thing left for you to be is basically a little node, a bit of training data for much more powerful AI entities commanded by people who have really no interest in your, your self-realization or even your happiness, ultimately. Not, your, not, not any kind of um, dignified view of happiness. So the World Government Summit is yet another showcase of that. And Sam Altman was there, of course, and Sam Altman had just been uh, at the, the UAE, the, been in the UAE, or at least speaking to uh, representatives from the UAE um, to uh, about his $7 trillion infrastructure uh, idea. And this, this you know, I, I, I think it's really important to look at that, that underlying, of uh, these underlying uh, processes as, you know, they're talking about AI as some sort of abstract entity, uh, and as I oftentimes do. What it really, you know, on the on the ground, what we're seeing is a huge push to build out infrastructure to create more and more sophisticated hardware, and of course, to pump the stocks to get tons of money so that this can happen. Uh, you know, if they're building a god, or even if they're just building little AI demons. Uh, it's only going to happen if they have the raw materials, the the minerals, and uh, of course the manufacturing capability to to build out the hardware. Um, yeah, the the link for that, and I brought that up. The seven billion uh, people can look at it. We'll not jump into it for time. Of course, World Government Summit. There's another link in with uh, Tony Blair speaking. I think Norman Laden put that up. He'll be with us in a week or so. But um, anything that Tony Blair is at. Uh, alarm bell should ring certainly for us in the UK. Let me just last one. Um, let me see this concept of which one I bring this one and I'll bring the other one up as well, which is Sora. Once again, uh, Joe, you, you are a window into this world often and things that slip by. I think many of us that you're highlighting, um, 
And this OpenAI unveils AI that instantly generates eye-popping videos. The startup is sharing the new technology called Sora with a small group of early testers as it tries to understand the potential dangers. And you put a number of pictures up and, and of those very weird videos. Uh, let's finish off with this. What is Sora? What exactly is happening here? Sora is a text-to-video generator put out by OpenAI. It's not been launched as a, com a consumer product yet. Right now, it's in a testing phase, so only a select group of people are using it and testing it, including artists, but also AI safety people and all that. Why it's important is it is basically dreams on demand. If you've seen videos that have been generated by AI, yes, a human being is prompting it, so on and so forth, but it is the, the ratio of non-biological to biological compute is overwhelmingly non-biological in this. And if you've seen these videos, they've been put out by a lot of different people. Um, uh, you know, what is it, Skywalk ML? There's a lot of different companies that have, have already done this. But uh, Runway ML. Uh, is the, the name of the AI company that, that's the most advanced. Anyway, what you see is basically a, a dreamlike scenarios. And Th these are the dolphins on bikes, the things that I saw. Absolutely. Yeah. Or turtles eating diamonds, yeah. so on and so forth. Uh, it's important because human beings, really the most important, the, 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 the deepest, most profound grasp we have on reality, in my view, comes from intuition. Uh, the external world is only going to give you so much information that you can use. Your intuition, your deep intuition will ultimately have to guide you through life. And dreams are a huge part of it. And the entertainment complex has long dominated our dreams. Uh, and, you know, many the Marxists would argue so have religions, but I, I disagree uh, on the basic premise. Uh, so in short, in our in a quick I know I've gone on too long here on the details. What we have here, OpenAI has put out ChatGPT, which allows people to let a machine write for them. They put out DALI, which allows people to let a machine uh, paint for them, draw for them. Uh, soon, we will have Sora, which allows human beings to have a machine dream for them. Yes, it will be a useful tool for filmmakers. Yes, it will make a lot of uh, video content easier, so on and so forth. But the ultimate, the end point of all this that I see is that they're creating products that trap the human psyche in a kind of feedback loop. And these corporations are going to control the content, not only of our kind of communications, uh, not only of the, the visual outputs, like right, the visual arts, they are going to control the direction of our dreams, of the, of the narratives. And so, uh, you know, on a, on a very practical level, uh, even, you know, Altman plays the whole role of, you know, the AI safety uh, hall monitor, you know, even as he creates the danger himself. Um, but, you know, I think the dangers that they highlight, though, are, are actually quite important. Uh, if you have a machine like this that has no guardrails whatsoever, you could generate horrific porn. You could generate horrific violent scenes. You could, most importantly, generate video content, deep fakes, 
that would be at least convincing to half the population. And that's all, you know, you just need 50% of uh, dumbasses to go along with something for it to be a, a movement and generate deep fakes on demand to frame people, uh, to, uh, to glorify people. You know, you could have a deep fake of Biden uh, sounding intelligent. Many believe that that has already happened. <laughs> so Sora represents yet another milestone in the, the move towards total digitization and what I see as a kind of soft enslavement. What OpenAI said in their press release is that this is a major milestone towards AGI, artificial general intelligence, or as I oftentimes call it, artificial godlike intelligence. So as what I believe they're doing, that they are creating basically a very sophisticated slave driver, taskmaster, to put over the general population, they are framing, and perhaps they even believe, uh, they are framing it as creating first human-level intelligence but of course, if a human can read everyone's text messages and see everything through the, the, the insect-like eye of surveillance cameras, that human-level intelligence, so-called, would be God-level intelligence. And as it moved beyond uh, the human level of cognitive capability, it would be, in fact, a God, an actual God. And I don't know how close we are to that actual possibility, but I do know from studying religion that if you have enough people who believe in something, then it has an effect whether that thing is real or not. 100%. Um, Joe, we'll leave it at that. It's fascinating, and it's good sometimes for the Saturday evenings to take a, a different angle on the news um, and specific uh, when we have Carly Bonnet's full-on MAGA. Uh, obviously, you live and breathe the eye, so thanks for coming on. And I would encourage people to get Darky on as a book or an audio book if you want to delve into this topic deeper. Uh, Joe does a, a fantastic sweep and synopsis all the way across what is happening, so I do encourage people to get that. But Joe, I appreciate you coming on today. Peter, I really, really appreciate it. I hope to see you again in person soon. It's, uh, it's This guy, uh, I'm going to tell the audience something that they might not know. This guy's actually hilarious and quite the charmer. Uh, he, he's a lot of fun to hang out with. So he may, not, he may seem so stiff here in this digital environment, but man, talk about a, a party animal. Anyway. I hope I we will we, we will hang out soon. Let, let me just leave something with our audience just before I let you go. Um, this is the event we're doing live events uh, here at Hearts of Oak, uh, us and David Vance. And this is our latest one, Father Calvin Robinson and Lawrence Fox. Laws are two very, very well-known media and political figures in the UK. And they'll be with us on 1st of March in central London, 7 to 9.30, Q&A time at the end, if you're around. I've had lots of emails from many of you saying, I'm in the States, I'm in Australia, I'm in Europe, I can't make it. Uh, we will try and stream it. Uh, we will try, but uh, we'll see if we can get the technology uh, fixed around that. But no, it is a, a pleasure. And Joe told, give me the, the suggestion of going on the Skyline Drive, which is one of my highlights when I was over in August. So thank you for that tip, Joe. And um, sorry I won't see you at CPAC. And we will meet sometime again soon. All right. Till then, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.